Welcome to Treasure Valley Podcast. I'm your host, Chuck. Before I introduce this week's guest, I have an announcement. Treasure Valley Podcast will be featured at this year's Tree Fort, so you can come listen live. It's going to be Thursday, March 24th at 2 p.m. It's inside the Boise Center East, room 420B. I hope you had a pen handy, or you can download the Tree Fort app, and it has all that information for you. This week, I sit down with local producer Katrine McGregor. We just scratched the surface of her knowledge on film production. If you are an indie filmmaker, you're you're really going to learn a lot from this podcast. Enjoy. Welcome, Katrine. Thank you. To start off, I think we should probably ask you, what does a producer do? Uh, good question. Very common question. So I, the, in the broad spectrum of it, the producer has the financial bottom line on a film and the director has the creative bottom line on a film. Okay. Okay. So obviously those... Uh, those positions can be interchanged depending on who it is because I'm pretty sure that when Spielberg gets wants something, he's going to get it regardless of what the producer wants to do. Okay. So <laughs> it kind of depends on, on where you are. If it's a powerful producer who's really been around for a while, then you, they will usually take the upper hand on controlling the budget. So um, say you're trying to cast the lead and the producer has – I don't know, let's say $30,000 budgeted in. If the director is looking at somebody that's going to cost them $100,000, the producer's pretty much going to have to say, yeah, that doesn't fit in our budget. So there definitely can be some contention between the director and the producer okay? because the director is trying to, to control the creative aspect of it and the producer is trying to control the financial aspect of it. So you're, it's basically you have a dream that a creative person is trying to – Shoot for the moon. Right. And the producer's job is to bring in an element of realistic The, the producer thought. is shooting for staying on budget. Okay. <laughs> they're shooting for the moon and they're shooting for staying on budget so what are some schedule. Of, what are some of the productions that you've worked on as a producer? Uh, as a producer, I did a, a movie called From Bubba with Love that was a lot of fun that was shot in North Carolina. Um, I've done a Nigerian movie, which was really interesting working with Nigerians because they lovely, lovely people. But uh, Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters, do you know who Ernie Hudson is, the black guy from Ghostbusters? Yeah. Um, Ernie was on the show and he was like, oh, they're totally going on African time. It was like call time, give or take five or six hours. So oh my goodness. Was, yeah, it was, it was pretty fascinating. Um, and then I, f I filmed in Nigeria at one point, and I saw that it was the same thing there. It was it was hysterical. It was a very, very funny, funny experience. Um, I have produced 40 episodes of a naturopathic TV show. Um, I just produced a movie called Fugued Up that's getting ready for distribution. Oh, right okay. Uh, which is a lot of fun. It was written by Bill Doty and directed by Bill Doty, who owns Sinestro Creative okay. here in town. Um, a lot of a lot of different kinds of things. I'm getting ready to do uh, a faith based documentary, so uh, my career has been very sporadic and very broad. Um, uh, sporadic because it's been partially producing, partially casting. Okay. Writing. I've cast over 400 projects, so I've done a lot of various things there. A lot of stuff for Disney. Um, a lot of, of horror projects. I've worked on on a few of the Halloweens. I've worked on a few of the Crow movies. Oh, okay. And, and a lot of Disney stuff. A lot of, uh, you know, 
which doesn't quite tie in with all the horror stuff. But I suppose you get moved into certain circles, and if you do a good job, they pull you within that totally that group. Totally, that makes sense. So your productions have kind of been all over the gamut, and there are independent filmmakers that listen to this podcast. Quite a few. We have right. musicians and indie filmmakers. Um, what advice could you give? an indie filmmaker as far as how to approach something when they're just starting out? So one of the things to to look at within yourself is, are you a film hobbyist or are you a filmmaker? Um, the difference between the two, and this is kind of my pet peeve with most universities and film programs and I'm so thrilled to be teaching at BSU right now because I'm I'm following through a little bit with the vision that I see what need what a film school needs to do. A film school needs to take you through the pre-production, the production, the post-production and the distribution of a project. So if you're not carrying it all the all the way through and finding out about distribution and finding out about deliverables, then you're just taking it to a certain point and it's a vanity project and you can show it to your friends and that's great and that's what you need to do to learn. But to become a true filmmaker, you have to take it a step beyond that. Um, Never compromise on your vision. Um, That doesn't mean that you can't compromise financially because there are certainly ways to do things that don't cost as much uh, where you don't have to compromise on the vision that you have or the quality that you have. Don't ever compromise on your cast because no matter what your budget is for cast, you can always get an amazing, amazing cast. There's never a reason for for bad casting. Especially here in the Treasure Valley. I will say that there's an incredibly large number of excellent actors that are always willing to donate their time to be able to flex that muscle, there so to speak. Are, and, and I almost hate to emphasize that because then a lot of people go, oh, they'll all work for free. Oh, <laughs> you know? well, Which is, <laughs> it depends on the project. They can be very, people, I think, make very careful decisions on who they work with, at least at least here in this community. I, I, I do too. And, and I, I do tell actors when I'm mentoring actors, I tell them, if you have the time and you have the ability to do it, and you're willing to do it, work on everything. Work on things that are paid. Work on things that are free. Because no matter what you work on, you're learning. Mm-hmm. Anything you work on, you're learning. And I know that I started in the studio system. Like this kind of tells you how ancient I am when there were dinosaurs wandering around Warner Brothers when I was working there. Okay. <laughs> I think you painted a good picture. <laughs> but uh, two Is this of my... before DVDs? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. My first two movies were Carrie and Blade Runner. Oh, okay. Okay. So uh, I went from doing uh, Carrie and Blade Runner to then going on and doing independent films that weren't quite as good. I learned exponentially more on the bad films. I shouldn't say the bad films, but the super low budget films. Okay. Because on the studio films, things run so smoothly. It, it's absolutely seamless. So as a novice, it's hard to even see what the machine is doing. It just happens so flawlessly that you don't really see the different components coming together. Yeah. Whereas when you work on a film that's not working, you go, oh, this isn't working because they didn't pre-plan this or they didn't do this or they didn't have the right props or the cast is not great and isn't prepared. 
So I, I tell actors, I, I say, if you have the time to work for free, um, do it because it's all a learning experience. I mean, anytime you know you have to pay to take classes to do scenes. Mm-hmm. Well, go ahead and work on a movie and do a scene. You may not be paid, but at least you're not paying to do it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that actors need to be paid whenever they can be. Um, you know, whenever there's enough money in a production to pay actors even a little bit, I, I'm going to be very, very happy when the Treasure Valley sees people making more when we see people making more SAG movies mm-hmm. uh, and they're getting SAG wages, even if it's on the lower budgets, that will make me very happy because I think that a lot of actors here have paid their dues and uh, they're ready to, to move into, you know, more solid jobs acting wise. You kind of touched on a, several different subjects there that I am interested in talking to you more about, uh, you know, the difference between filming in Idaho versus filming somewhere where, film is much more heavily ingrained. Um, but also the fact that the way a studio works is something I'm totally unfamiliar with. I would imagine a majority of the people here in Idaho are completely unfamiliar with mm-hmm. um, that difference in working on a in a position where you have limited responsibility uh, versus trying to run and gun and make something all on your own. What are some of those key things that you learned when you were on a much lower budget production that you would advise people to keep in mind when they are first going out to try to take their script and turn it into a reality? Stay in your lane. Okay. That's a huge one. Um, Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, part of the beauty of working here is that, you know, you you can work on a film and, and you're hired to do X, but you end up doing a lot more things because People are needed in different departments. But I'll tell you a classic story. I don't know if you know Robin Meyer, who is here locally now, but um, she's worked for a lot of big productions before. <clears throat> she had started in the studios working as a PA, just as a as a regular PA. So uh, when you're working as a PA, when when the AD, you know, yells quiet. Mm-hmm. Assistant of, director. Yes, the assistant director. Yeah. Yes, the PA is the production assistant. Yes, uh, echo it. Okay, and they say quiet, quiet. Mm-hmm. So the the assistant director, the AD says quiet, and the PAs all echo quiet all the way down the set, so that you're guaranteed to have as much quiet as you can. So Robin had worked for three movies as a PA, so she took herself very seriously. You know, getting the the set quiet. Well, on her fourth film, she was hired as a wardrobe PA, not a regular PA, a wardrobe PA. And she had never been a wardrobe PA before. It was new to her. So the first day on the set, she'd never even met the costume designer who was her boss. And the first day on the set, they did the first scene, and the AD yelled, quiet. And Robin, being used to being a regular PA, yelled, quiet. And the wardrobe designer was sitting in a chair behind her and turned around to her assistant and said, is that woman in our department? (laughs) And her assistant said, yes, she is. And she said, she's fired. Oh, wow. That's quick. And that was it. Bye-bye. You have to know what your job is. Yeah. And you stay in your lane. And and unfortunately, um, that's going to be 
a hard lesson for a lot of people who go down to L.A. and work in the studio system because here, in a great way, everybody's used to working together. Yeah. And everybody kind of jumps in. I mean, you asked what a producer does. A lot of times when I'm producing, I'm also doing craft service. You okay. <laughs> and I end up being the one picking up all the water bottles around the set. Okay. Uh, you know, you're not going to see that on a studio production in L.A. No. Um, but I, I think that's one of the big lessons is is learn what every department does before you open your mouth and start telling other people what to do. Yeah, um, because it can be very disconcerting if if uh, you're doing your job and somebody steps in who really doesn't even know what your job is and they start to tell you what to do, it's uh, it's very frustrating. So I really encourage people to work in different departments, even if they have no intent of ever working in that department professionally again, just to see what that department does because it will make them a better colleague when they're working with other crew members in the future. And you can downsize then and, and be able to pick up some of those jobs if you're working on something that you want to do on your own. If you have, uh, let's say that you were in charge of helping someone that wanted to kick out like a, a low budget film or maybe even zero budget, minimal budget, and they had minimal staff, as far as the subject of staying in your lane, what would you recommend that a, a small indie film cohort would have as far as obviously you need the cast i mean that's a given and that's just going to vary however many characters there are in the script but as far as like crew is concerned what would your or maybe you probably have stories where you have that sweet spot between having it's not too many people it's not too few people to where everybody's stressed out but we have just the right amount of people that are filling just the right amount of the right amount of roles to get this thing done I actually think that a lot of times a lot more gets done with a small crew. Okay. And I think one of the most harmful things with having a bigger crew is that more things can slip through the cracks. So I encourage anybody making a film, the producer of the film, no matter how low budget, Mm -hmm. to very carefully define what each person's responsibilities are. So no matter how small or how big the crew is, they should know exactly what they are expected to do so that there are no surprises on the set. Because a lot of times people can make an assumption that, well, I hired you to do so-and-so, so I, I just assume that you would understand that you need to follow through and do so-and-so. Well, no, you never made that clear. So I think it's very, very important, especially with a small crew, for everybody to know exactly what's expected of them. Even when it comes to wrapping at night, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, you're a PA. Yes, you're a PA. We want you to stick around at night and help wrap up with camera crew and help wrap up cables and, and carry it outside. Um, I, I, I think that where most problems come from is when things are not defined. I think that that if you define what people are supposed to do, you have to do a lot less micromanaging. Because I think most people take their jobs very seriously. If something is assigned to them, they'll be very happy to follow through on it. But they have to know what's expected of them. That's really solid advice. And having made those mistakes on extremely low-budget films in the past, communication is key. Um, One of the issues, though, is some of those unforeseen problems. Have you had uh, coaching experiences where you've helped some maybe new filmmakers go through some unforeseen problems that maybe you can illustrate so that people that are out there trying to do it on their own maybe don't get caught by surprise? 
Well, what I recommend is is when you're producing, you try to think through. The only way to, to make your way through a film and keep your sanity is to work out every single moment of the production in pre-production. You think ahead through the entire production because then when things come up that you didn't anticipate, you'll be ready to handle them. Because if you're still trying to to make your way through what you need to do on a day-to-day basis and then a problem comes up, you're going to become completely overwhelmed. So I think the stronger your pre-production is – in fact, I've, I've told people who've worked with me in production, as a producer, if you're doing a good job, your work is so well done in pre-production that when you show up on the set, people should say, now, what do you do? Because I just see you sitting around with a cup of coffee in your hand <laughs> because – they just don't see the work that went into it. And and I feel like saying, are you looking around? Is the director here? Are we shooting? Do we have SD cards in the cameras? Do we have lights? Do we have craft service? Do we have... Well, that's all the stuff that I did in pre-production to make sure that, um, you know, that people know what's expected of them. It's almost like a musician that practices through their set so well that if something happens on stage, they're not taken aback you you want it to be automatic or an actor that memorizes all of her lines so she can then focus on the emotional aspect rather than tripping over the words uh, a a lot of it is um as a producer you really have to think on your feet so you know i've had situations where we were shooting outside and a sudden downpour came oh okay just could not shoot but you've got the cast there, you've got the crew, they're there, you don't have that much time, maybe you don't have the cast for that long. Mm-hmm. You have to immediately switch to what you're going to do. Either that scene can be done under a porch, uh, it, it can mm-hmm. be done inside. You really have to think on your feet and think very quickly. And that's the point at which you need to have a strong network. A strong network of people is always crucial when you're working in film. I had a I had a situation not too long ago where exactly that happened, where it was raining and I had to think very quickly of where we could shoot. And I called a a friend of mine who had an event center and we said, can we go in really quickly and shoot at your, I mean, we need to do it now. Mm. And she said, yes. So um, you need to be able to think on your feet because things will go wrong. Um, Actors will walk off the set. Um, Actors will come in who aren't prepared. And what do you do then when all the other actors are? You're either going to need to rewrite the scene or bring another actor in at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very, very few situations now after all these years that would really throw me for a loop. Um, but I've had I've had a few situations, even on the last two films that I did, that were tricky. But you just have to keep a very level head and think through them. And... Um, you always think through, in any circumstance, you want to think through the safety of the crew. Because if it's a situation that could be that could involve safety, there's not a project on earth that's worth hurting anybody or killing anybody. So that should always be the number one priority, way over money, way over the money that's being spent. Which is, that's a very important point because I think a lot of people might underestimate the importance of safety, but even just in some of this, the low-budget stuff I've shot, crossing the street. Let's say you have a scene where someone's crossing the street. 
they can't be focused on cars. And that takes a huge amount of trust on an actor's part to be able to walk across the street when Absolutely. you're like, you know, cue, go. It's, it's, so those situations do come up. And unfortunately, like people can get hurt if you're not oh, super yeah. careful. I've, I've seen some horrible situations. I mean, I've, I've been on films. I don't want to mention any particular films, but I've been on films where if the stunt coordinator had not stepped in or the AD, who is ultimately responsible uh, for safety, by the way, the AD, people need to know that. Um, if they had not stepped in and said, no, we're not doing this, somebody could easily have been hurt or killed. We were doing a project a few years ago uh, here in Boise, and it was in the winter, and we were working on that bridge that's off the connector when you're heading into Boise. Oh, okay. It's on the right-hand side. It's a really, really cool old, like, metal bridge that's oh. actually a walking bridge. Now. Yeah, yeah. Do you know where I'm talking Yeah, about? the one right off the green belt that's right. It's right kind of, I think it's of the... off of Americana. Yeah. You, you can come. Okay. So we were filming there, and it was at night, and um, they just had uh, storyboards. Let me get to storyboards. Definitely storyboard. Um, they had not thought how they were going to do this scene, but there was a scene where um, there was a young man hanging off the side of the bridge. Oh. And and so obviously they said, no, we've got it taken care of, and we're safety-oriented. And Well, when it got down to it, they had not thought it through. And it was in the middle of winter, and it was cold, Ooh. and there was frost on it, and they were going to have this kid hang off the bridge um, that was fairly high with nothing underneath him to catch him. And um, my son was ADing that movie, and my son said, we're not doing that. And they said, well, we'll fire you. And he goes, you go ahead and fire me, but you are put on notice, so what an AD needs to do if they are being forced into a situation is they need to make it very public that they have given a warning mm -hmm. that if anything happens at that point, there is no protection from a from a corporation or a limited liability company. If something has been pointed out to the director and the producer that it could be dangerous by the AD or the stunt coordinator, they will then be personally liable. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's something that's important for people to know on both ends, from yeah. director, producer, and also somebody who's working on the set. Um, but never, ever I, – I saw a person blown up on a set once uh, years ago. Oh, my goodness. And that's not something I ever want to experience again. I hope nobody else ever experiences it. And it was only because the, the special effects person was being pushed to move quickly. And he was young and he was inexperienced and um, – he didn't he didn't have enough confidence to stand up and go no i'm not ready we'll we'll shoot when i'm ready and uh and he ended up getting blown up so safety absolute absolute number one priority um there's no movie on earth that's worth hurting anybody no no or in, yeah the the injuries and it's so simple to have anything like that happen even if it's a well choreographed fight you bet which is why i mean fortunately you know the stuff that we do is mostly conversational and we don't have to think about that too much. But, you know, when people cross the street, we've had we've had to keep our eyes peeled. And on it's some as of simple our lower... as crossing the street, though. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't necessarily have to be be doing a high fall from mm -hmm. eight feet, eight, eight stories up. Yeah. It can be something as simple as crossing a street and mm -hmm. somebody getting hurt. I yeah. mean, what was the movie a few years ago where the person got killed on the railroad trust because they were on a railroad bridge, and they did not have permission. 
they had asked permission from the owners, and the owners said, no, it's too dangerous, and they went ahead and shot anyway. Oh, my goodness. And somebody was killed. One of the camera assistants was killed. And, uh, you know, the number one thing is that somebody got killed. That's the yeah. most horrible thing ever. But the liability at that point, I mean, those people will probably never work again. No, it's it'd be done. That's... Uh... And it's, and it's really actually impossible right now to get the train schedule because I was trying to shoot a scene where people were waiting at, at the rail yard. And for security issues, the train won't tell you, not at the rail yard, but, in, you know, in front of those crossbars. Right. Where, the, where it's blinking would be like, oh, it would be so nice in this car scene if they were sitting in front and then there were a train going by. So we call the train station. We're like, when, does, when do trains roll through here? We can't tell you. We can't tell you that. It's like, oh, darn it. You could just sit there for weeks and track it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to have somebody in charge of safety, yes. priority number one, AD, stunt coordinator, mm-hmm. if AD main person, but stunt coordinator if you do have like fight scenes or anything like that. Um, so what other positions would you recommend in a crew if somebody has to limit themselves that so you would have, that they there, would have? There are two positions that I think people ignore a lot, or maybe not ignore them, but don't think about them so much. You know, you always think about the DP, you have to have somebody shoot it, you have to have somebody direct it, and you have to have actors, and you have Mm -hmm. to have all of that. Um, I think a lot of people uh, don't think enough about DIT, um, and I highly recommend that both any kind of uh, digital data and audio data be backed up on three separate drives. Okay, yeah. Three. Not Which, one, not two, three. It's a lot of data now, too, to, to oh my back God. that up. It's ridiculous. So you need to have somebody uh, on set who understands the labeling process. What does DIT stand for? You know, it, it, there are different interpretations of okay. it, but uh, it, it's it's pretty much, you know, I is information and T okay. is technology, digital, director of director digital, of, director, yeah. Digital there, information there are, technology. It's like ADR has 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 several different, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. you know. Automated dialogue replacement. Right. Or, uh, yeah. Right. Um, but they, a lot of people don't even think about having a DIT person on the set, mm-hmm. but they need to be there and they need to be backing it up. But before you ever start, the um, the really the director, the producer, the script supervisor, the DIT person, and the editor need to sit down and figure out how the labeling is going to be done yeah. on the DIT because everybody has to be completely in sync on it because if it's labeled – the whole idea of doing DIT – well, first of all, the idea of doing DIT and backing it up three times is – it's going to be very expensive to reproduce what you just shot, or it can be impossible to reproduce what you just shot. So you never want to lose that original footage. And uh, it's easy enough for a file to to become corrupt. So you always want to do three. Um, But the other thing is, you know, if DIT is done right, it makes the editor's job so much easier because they they turn over, um, you know, data that is very properly properly coded and the editor knows exactly what they're supposed to work with so DIT to me is very important and pretty much for the same reason a script supervisor that is one position that I think people ignore a lot continuity is so important it's it's not just continuity though it's you know the the script supervisor with as many years as I've been in the business it's not a job that I would ever think that I could possibly take on for 20 minutes. I, I'd be tearing my hair out because 
not only do they have to pay attention to the continuity of, you know, what hand were they using when they picked up the water bottle and on what word did they pick it up? And was it their right hand or their left hand? Or was the, you know, was the screw on the, you know, was the, the top on the bottle? Did yeah. they have done screw? I mean, all of that. But they also have to be completely aware of whether or not the actor changed the dialogue. So any any changes in dialogue from the script need to be noted on every take so that they know that it can be edited. But on top of that, they have to stay completely on top of the shot list because ultimately if you get done on a location, you move to another location and you didn't get every shot on the list, it's the script supervisor's fault. Oh, that's that's good to know. Yeah. We just uh, – my brother usually takes care of the shot list and the thing is, is while he's directing, we've gone through and then – Oh, we missed a pickup. Sure. Which, you know, we have a system now in place to where we don't miss at least the part that we know we need, the meat and potatoes. But then those right. those insert shots can easily get thrown underneath. So because easy. Because you have, if you have so many different roles going on. And then you're in the editing room and you're mm-hmm. going, where is that insert shot? That that's happened need? to me before, happened to us before. Yeah. It's happened to everybody. <laughs> and that's a nightmare. And you know, a good uh, script supervisor will also keep you from, like, you know, crossing the line and your shots. And um, to me, they're worth their weight in gold. I mean, they need to be good. Yeah. This is not a position that it's It's one of the things that kind of irritates me. That a lot of times you'll see people, it's kind of like you're little kids and you're playing cowboys and Indians. It's like, okay, today you be the cowboy and I'll be the Indian. Tomorrow you be the Indian and I'll be the cowboy. And it's like, you can't do that in film. It's like... Okay, today you be the script supervisor, and tomorrow I'll be the AD. I mean, these should be really trained positions. Yeah. Um, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't claim that position unless you really know what you're doing. Because a a script supervisor that doesn't know their job, um, it can kill a movie. And a and a good script supervisor, like I said, is worth their weight in gold. One of those jobs that you don't even really necessarily notice. That they're there, right? Like you were saying, when the producer does the job at, right. ahead of the ahead of the time, <laughs> somebody who can probably sit, focus while paying attention, Ex- even if it's mundane, whatever is happening. Exactly, being able to do that—that that would be hard for me, definitely, yes. <laughs> definitely. Just have that somebody with ADHD. Yeah. Don't be a script supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> so, script supervisor, somebody in charge of digital, which I agree with you heavily on the digital thing because it gets to be such a mess when you're dealing with. Uh, even when we shot our first feature film, um, we had so many files, so many audio and video right. files, and trying to keep that all organized. And we didn't have a system in place, and so it turned into a really long process on the back end trying mm-hmm. to get everything. You waste literally weeks if you don't have a a good, you know, a a good filing system set up for your DIT. Like they they always say, uh, an ounce of of profession is worth a pound of the cure. Absolutely. So DIT and script supervisor, is there any other positions that you think are overlooked? You know, people always, they'll ask me, you know, so is your position the most important one or is the director the most important one? I tell them film doesn't work that way. It's not a hierarchy. It's it's very much a, a lateral thing where um, try making a movie without craft service. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, to me, no matter how low the budget, one thing you have to do is feed your crew well. Mm-hmm. So – Make sure there are bathrooms where you're going to shoot too because right. – 
So when it comes to crew, tell me who's disposable on a crew. No one is disposable on a crew. So um, everybody that's working is important. Everybody, everybody that's there, you know, if somebody is doing wardrobe and they have the wardrobe with them and they don't show up, you can't shoot. Mm-hmm. The camera guy doesn't show up. So I think every person that you have on set is very important. And I think um, that you really need to look, you know, when we're casting, we do chemistry reads. So okay. we, we may look at a, a male, let's say that the male actor is the lead, and but he has to have a, a strong female co-star. Um, the casting will probably get down to three or four people, final people on a bigger project. Mm-hmm. And from there on out, it's a chemistry read between the actor and the actresses to see where the chemistry is How do you do best. those? Um, they read together. Okay. And it's just very, I mean, it's it's just like when you meet somebody, if there's a chemistry or not. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, uh, it's pretty tangible when it's on film. And it's the same thing with a crew. I think if you have um, a crew that doesn't fit together well, it's going to show up in the film itself. I, I think that you need, when you're putting a crew together, you need to th- think past what the person can do or what their experience is or what equipment they can bring to it. I think you have to think whether or not that crew is going to be able to work together. Because if if they don't, it can be a nightmare. And a crew that works together well, things run absolutely seamlessly. Yeah, I could imagine how if you have five people or if you're you know on a small production, it might be better to have only a few people that work well together rather than you know, seven or eight people that... Absolutely. And, you know, people talk about nepotism in the business. And it's like, well, how do I ever break into your group? Um, You know, you always hire the same people. Well, nobody's going to argue with that. Mm -mm. Because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was going to say that's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I think any field that I've ever worked in, everybody's always been concerned about nepotism or bringing friends in. But to like me, it makes perfect sense that you would never switch something out if if you already have right. the connection with that person right. or you know them from outside or you know they're – because a lot of times, at least uh, for for me, if I'm I'm working with somebody that I've met through a friend, we've already hung out. We already know that right. we have that chemistry together. And so it's such an easy transition for them to be able to bring their expertise on or whatever skill set. And, and, and if it's people it that you know show up, they do the job, they do it pleasantly because mm-hmm. it really takes one rotten apple on the set to really change everybody's mood. I'm sure you've seen that. Yep. <laughs> Not naming names, but I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah. Um, so you really need to be careful about the the group that you put together because it can be – it really can truly become a family. And I'm sure you've had those experiences where the film ends and you're like, oh, no, I don't want this film to end because it's been so great. Yeah, it's it, it can be – you get that flow state going right. and everybody's having fun. But as a producer, I think it's super important to bring the right components together. It's not just talent. It's personality as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so you connect that. Oh, totally. That's that's a producer's job along with totally. the business. That's a huge part of it for me. The The glue, mm-hmm. so to speak. Because mm-hmm. you do have so many people that have those isolated talents, like you say, where it's not anyone that's good at what they do, whether it's audio, visual, acting, uh, organizational, they can always just jump and find something somewhere else to work if they don't like the director or they don't like the cameraman or they don't like the AD 
or exactly. whatever, and vice versa on all those different positions. It's those skill sets that you learn are so universally needed on so many other people's projects right? that you can just bounce around. So um, on, the, on the business end, do you have any advice uh, for filmmakers? Like let's say once the film is done and they don't want to share it with their, their friends, or they do obviously, like hopefully you share it with your friends. <laughs> hopefully you're not that embarrassed by it. But let's say that they do want to like push to the next level. So I, I think there are a few things to keep in mind. So, um, uh, you know, there are probably a lot of your listeners know Mike Goff, who's a local filmmaker. I don't know if you know him or not. I haven't met him, no. I just adore Mike, one of my favorite people in town and very talented. But several years ago, he did a documentary called Add the Words. That, okay. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard of that. It was yep. about, okay. So it was about, um, you know, verbiage and the Idaho Constitution about the LGBTQ plus yeah. community. And... Um, he went out and filmed – he really had no vested interest in in the topic, really. He just felt it was fascinating to see so much passion on both sides. Mm-hmm. So he grabbed his camera and decided to make a documentary and, and won many awards with it, really did very well. And uh, uh, while they were in the film festival circuit, there is a company from L.A. who approached them to buy the film mm-hmm. for substantially more than they had put into it, which is unusual for a documentary. Okay. It's hard to sell a documentary. Yeah. So I guess the first probably step is like be prepared not to get your money back. Oh, with the documentary. <laughs> or well, just, any yeah, film, anything, anything. Any film. It's yeah. like just – and good luck explaining that to your investors. <laughs> but, um, so he was all excited. It was mm. like, oh, my God, there's a distribution company that wants to buy our film. First question, very simple show me the releases of all the people that you interviewed. Ooh. Yeah, not one. Oh, my goodness. So I know that there, it just seems like there's so much glory in just grabbing your camera and mm-hmm. going out and making this great film and it's your passion and it's all that, but you have to think about the legal part of it. Yeah. You have to have a release on every single person that you see on camera. Every single person. Um the crews that work for me when they start when they sign their start paperwork, a photo release is included because we're probably going to see them in the BTS shots. Mm, yeah. And I need the releases from them for the BTS shots to be able to get distribution. Yeah. Um, so it's it's crucial that you have all your contracts in place. Uh, every location needs to have a, a release. Every piece of artwork, original mm-hmm. artwork, has to have a release from the artist. Um, you can also very, very, very easily go online and find out what the deliverables are. So I, I would recommend going to either uh, Netflix or Indie Rights. Um, Indie Rights is a good one. You can go to their website and their deliverable needs are right on their website. So you can download it and it will tell you exactly what needs to be delivered to them in order for them to even consider distributing your film. So it gives you all the technical specs, both for audio and for camera. Um, Your project will most likely have to go through QC, through quality control. Mm -hmm. There are companies... Um, that do that. You can get a small feature on the very low end. The QC will cost about $1,000. 
and that's the first time through, and, and they will charge every time you put it back through. It will be less, but they'll find things that are unbelievable. Like they'll, they'll find a scene where there's a pixel that's missing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But uh, with most distributors, if you don't have QC signed off on, they won't look at your film. Um, you also need to have closed captioning on your film, which is quite inexpensive. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that a lot of people uh, don't know to get distribution, and this is, these are things that you need to think about when you're in post-production because it costs a lot more to go back and do it afterwards, is you need to provide them with an M&E track. And an M&E track uh, or your audio, audio tracks broken down uh, the M and E tracks separated are for them to be able to make a foreign sale on your film. So you will literally have a track that has all of your soundtrack, all of your additional music, your source music, and all of the Foley mm. with all of the voices taken out. So that they can overdub. So they can overdub, but have all the Foley there, have all the music there, yeah. and everything there. I spent some time in Spain, and they overdub all all the movies. Right. I think here we're used to subtitles. Right, um, but there they dubbed them. It's just everything was dubbed. Right. And it drove me bananas. Yeah. I'd like, I'd, I'd rather just not understand this in Spanish and <laughs> <laughs> watch it that way. Especially when you know the or, project well, I guess, English. Yeah, I guess it was English, you know. I, I don't know what and I'm when, saying And when there. it doesn't match, it's <laughs> yeah. insane. Yeah. I mean, when when you know what the vo- – it's James mm. Earl Jones in the United States and, mm. and in a foreign country, you hear somebody with a little tiny voice. It's like, no, this doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, but those are the kinds of specs – um, they're going to need certain BTS shots. And if you come in and you have uh, BTS shots of the crew doing their work, but you don't have a lot of narrative shots of the film actually being made, they won't accept your film. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre, the, mm. the things that you need. But these are the things that you can't redo. No. You can't go in and redo it afterwards. So... You have to look at all of these components in pre-production and in production. And they're very easy to find. Like I said, Indie Rights, by the way, is a company that I really encourage every independent filmmaker to go to because they're an aggregator. Okay. So what they do is if they accept your film, they take it in and you do need all of the the components put together that I mentioned, all the deliverables done properly. If they take your film... Well, I, I guess I kind of have to back up. I don't know if people know how distributors work, but if you go through a sales agent, they take a percentage, and then the distributor takes a percentage. By the time the filmmaker gets the money, there's virtually none left. Okay. What the but the second project, right? You can negotiate exactly. Yeah. But what they do is they'll also say, um, "We have upfront marketing costs, so the first thirty thousand dollars that come in." on your movie goes into our pocket before there's any split with you. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of go, oh, okay. Cause they're like, yeah, we need to shop it at film festivals. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, what you're doing is you're funding their trip to the film festival. Mm. And the chances of you seeing the money back are going to be pretty slim. Yeah. What aggregators like Indie Rights do is if they accept your film, they take 20% off the top, but you see 80% of every single sale starting with the first sale. 
Oh, okay. So they don't recoup the $10,000 or $30,000 or whatever. You know, if if they get – if somebody rents your movie for $10, they're going to see $2 and you're going to see 8 right yeah. from the first um, – from the very first rental or the very first sale. So I really looking at – look, you know, uh, encourage people to look into the aggregators. Yeah. Like Indie Rights. But again, Indie Rights right on their website and it's I N D I E Rights R I G H T S dot com. Mm. And uh, they have all of their deliverables listed right on their website. So it makes it very easy. Even if you don't plan to go to them, um, they've got very stringent deliverables. So if you're if you're meeting their deliverables in your post production, it'll probably meet um, anybody's criteria. Well, that's really good to know. You're a fountain of knowledge when it comes to filmmaking. I could talk to you all day, but we're we're out of time. Thank you so much, Katrin. You uh, do do you have any classes coming up that you'd like um, to know, let people do. know? I do. They'll be uh, they'll be on Facebook. Okay. Um, and I'm teaching at BSU. Somebody's going to BSU. So they can take my producing class. You can always sign up for that one. But you do have classes outside of that. I do Just... have classes. Yes. Okay. Yes, and they're they're usually on Facebook, and we market through uh, you know Indie. Was it? What's the the website just spaced it out. Idaho uh, Indie Filmmakers. Idaho That's Indie it. Filmmakers. So if you follow Sorry, them. John Wee and Sean Mann, don't kill me. <laughs> follow them or join the group and then <laughs> keep an eye out if you want some more information from Katrine. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Treasure Valley Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to tell a friend, a family member, or an acquaintance about it. Podcasts are spread via word of mouth.